Hello and welcome to episode 188 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Ballantyne, Chris Weston and Timo Peach. Welcome to another episode of WB40, everybody. It is fantastic to be back. And we have another guest. It's going to be fantastic. Matt, what have you been up to this week? Well, it, it's obviously, uh, we're recording a, a day later um, than usual, so it's Tuesday, so summer has broken. If you're paying attention, you've got about another 24 hours or so to be able to enjoy summer before it ends again in time for the children to break up from school, which is if yet more evidence of the, the non-existence of any sort of eternal entity in the sky uh, other than clouds. That's it. The last week has been... It's, it, it, you get to the point with this lockdown thing where you just go, oh, for sake, can we just now stop? And then realising that, no, it can't stop. We've got to carry on. So I've been getting a bit bored with well, Matt, what's been going Matt, on. Well, Matt, to your previous point, what you are describing is perhaps evidence or a lack of evidence of a benevolent entity up there. doesn't rule out the alternative. That's true. It could just be that the, the, the entire overlording system is run by a misanthropic psychopath, which actually, when you look at it, suddenly I could believe in religion out the back of that, quite bizarrely. That's the first time I think I've ever had that sort of revelatory thing. I'm glad to Although we did service. describe, actually, that on the, the WB40 Signal channel, which used to be WhatsApp, but Signal for the cool kids, and I, there was a piece that I think John Harris wrote in The Guardian at the week, or The Observer at the week, they're all the same these days, about the difficulty of being unreligious during such times where there's nothing to be able to fall back on. There's no cushion of religious softness to be able to soften the blow of mad global pandemics and thinking that as a point of that that maybe the wb40 group is a religion substitute which seemed to be roundly derided by the group who then went back to talking about addressable leds whatever it is that people in the group talk about yeah we need an all things bright and beautiful really before we get there we don't really have one no we don't how's your week been christopher my week has been very much like any other week as always having said that right so this last week i did a a conference in Serbia, which was good fun, all from, of course, the comfort of my uh, misery hole that is my office. And I also, I went to lunch with a bunch of people. And it was it was quite nice, actually. And it was organised by the wonderful Amanda Brock of uh, Open UK. And it was a, a launch of their report, uh, their recent report into the use of open source software in the UK. And I happened to be talking to her and she uh, said, why don't you come along? And I did. And they even sent me something to eat. So that was nice. And I had a spot of lunch with some people I've never met before, including somebody who works for Google, who wrote a bunch of software for the Google keyboard. He reckoned his, his software is used by about 3 billion people around the world, which is kind of cool. And and so that was good. And yeah, can't complain. Here we are. And we're already in Tuesday. So the week's thundering past already. Well, it's not Tuesday, probably, when people are listening to this, but, you know... Well, it's Tuesday for me, that's what makes sense. Oh, yeah, okay, it is. Well, it was Tuesday for you. It was. I sat next to Vint Cerf on a bus once, just talking of people at Google. Vint Cerf is one of the people who basically invented the uh, networking standards around TCPIP, I believe. Oh. And uh, a lovely beard. Don't they all? Indeed. Joining us this week, Timo, how's your last seven days been? Well, yes, not not quite as existential as you two, by the sounds of it. I mean, this this podcast goes deep fast. I can see that. I was just bimbling along, reading things on LinkedIn. 
uh, when, when they <laughs> things about I can't stand LinkedIn the, the superficiality of it all oh I love the, it the, the love lack it. of conversation for, oh. for its superficiality and for the occasionally you know pricelessly dim things that people put on there and sometimes if you, they, you know there's some good stuff as well but God grief there's some there's some funny things I came back to it as a necessary I don't know about evil but a necessary irritation. I've had actually lots of good conversations on there, I will confess. But if you think of LinkedIn as sort of performance art, it changes the enjoyment levels. I, I have to tend to think about most of modern life as somehow being performance art. I think this government in the United Kingdom at the moment is just basically a, a very long-winded piece of situationist it's a stunt of some sort, isn't it? I agree. And yeah. unless you respond in kind and imagine that you yourself are are creating some sort of living installation, then then it's all downhill. And I don't know which deity you're going to turn to, but you're going to have to find one of them. You need some sort of philosophical philosophical rock to tie this art to. It's like a it's like Albert Camus, isn't it? So it's some something mm. in in his world that you you need you need to tie it to that, and and then 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 you're you're okay. You know, if you can say an absurdist kind of theatre, I think we're I think we're we're good with that. Gosh, you're right. Yeah. This does get deep, doesn't it? It it does, and I'm also now mentally walking along a beach in Morocco somewhere, you know, reading Camus in in situ, and I'm wondering now. This so vivid is this easily to mind that my year in lockdown is means that I'm wondering whether I'm actually this is all taking place in the last few seconds of my cerebral cortex, well, and it's true. you guys. My brain has brought to <laughs> my God. brought to mind. So welcome, that's, welcome that's to the going, to the last off. moments of Timo going off oh, on, going man. off on a tangent. That really is, yeah. I, I, so actually, there, there's a thing, because there's been a lot of talk. We haven't talked at all about NFTs over the last uh, few weeks since their emergence on the internet as yet another wacky pyramid investment scheme. But I was I was chatting to somebody on, on the Twitters earlier today and talking about, he was talking about whether, you know, what what do people do? Do they take these these artworks that they've bought with a non-transferable token or whatever it is that NFT stands for? Non-fungible you know, non token, non-fungible, which, which isn't yeah, yeah. something you can get at the chemist. No, and Lord knows I've tried. But they, the, the, what do they do? Do they sit in sort of a darkened room and then open up a JPEG image of the thing to be able to say? But I was, I was thinking about that, and something that's been going through my head about it is that although the whole NFT thing is obviously utterly ludicrous, nuts, and and probably a massive pyramid scheme, is it any different to buying a manky old bit of? of canvas that somebody a hundred or so years ago daubed with pigment and linseed oil. And I'm not sure necessarily it is any more preposterous. No, I don't know. I'm if just... people are buying, then there it is. And we can be sniffy about the art world, but it's a nice little world to be part of. And I think of an artist like Joni Lemercier, who's really looked at this from her own work. She's kind of gone into this kind of a lot and found a very empowering community there for herself and and made a living out of it and then for her she did this wonderfully sort of honest piece looking at the you know how how great and how empowering and looking forward and taking taking back control for artists the whole idea is and ah how instantly terrible it is because of the carbon footprint it's not just a bit bad but colossally terrible because of all those servers humming away while people mine things so yeah it's got a way to go to iron out some kinks but it sounds like there's some for some people there's a really good positive thing there and yes from another perspective like most things in art in the art world rather uh, it can look preposterous if you're not in there 
Yeah. I don't have you been tempted, Chris, to buy any uh, NFTs? I haven't, partly because you're all locked up in your Bitcoin investments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you need you need quite a lot <laughs> of money. You're one Bitcoin theoretically worth a oh, billion, had one a billion US dollars, but you can't cash it in or don't know where it is. Well, you can't turn the mining off. I don't know how it works. There are people, aren't there, who, you know, like that guy in Wales who's trying to find a hard drive that he threw away 15 years ago that's worth 25 it's, billion. It's a nice sort of urban myth, isn't it? I don't know if it's real, but, but, but I um, feel his pain. Oh, uh, there, there will be, right? Because once upon a time, this was all just fun, fun and games, right? And it was, yes. it was 10 quid, and now it's, <laughs> it's worth millions of pounds. And it's no, it's not, it's not fun and games anymore. Where, but Where right. is my Mac 2 that I bought that <laughs> that's on? Right. It's uh, well, that's the whole point, isn't it? This is in terms of in terms of magnetic media and stories and all these things. It can it is mm. it is rather impermanent, as but as, as as are all things. But the so I I saw that that first one that Beeple or whatever it was that thing, and it was millions mm. of millions of dollars or whatever mm-hmm. on NFT. And my my thought with that is no, nobody's bought that because they think oh my god I must have that artwork. They bought it for a, it's like a flat in Dubai. It's it's a it's an investment by somebody mm. with a whole bunch as you say of cryptocurrency that they could change to normal money but they'd get a massive massive tax bill and all sorts of things would happen at that point and somebody might start to ask where it's come from and all that kind of nonsense Mm. so it's a way of taking a massive amount of money that they probably don't need to turn into into fiat currency and putting it in something else just to see what happens and there's a lot of people out there not you know not the majority of crypto holders but there are a lot of people out there with a lot of paper money or digital paper mm. money that doesn't that isn't really worth anything to them because yes they could they could cash it in but it's just not worth it so that whole that thing that happened and the, all the hype about it it's all about okay can we make this worth something more is it it's just mm. about pumping a market when you get down to the is it worth digitally signing something so i can say i own it well that's another question isn't it because we that's and we we do that with oh, we try to do it with computer games we try to do we try to do it with media don't yeah. we you know home taping is copy is killing music all that kind of thing trying to sign something to say you have the right to look at this or you you own a bit of it or whatever there's loads of that going on this this was always this is just a it's just a thing that's happening it's just weird it's nothing new it's just a slightly different set of tools and a bit of hype that's a bit of fun for people and people those are lots of money invest in the art market and somebody like Beeple or others, you know, what's built them up is years of grafting away in a shed. I myself am in a shed. You know, building something that seems like integrity to, to you, truth to you. And then if you end up in the middle of a hype machine, like having a hit record, you know, keep your head. It's rather fun. If you can actually pay some bills in the real world, happy days. But not many people can get there purely through a cynical stunt that has no nothing in it. And I, I, I think in a way that... The front end is always what the papers go. This is insane because it is. But the back end, the sketchbooks, the interesting bit about art always. I I, I miss though the days. I, my I think actually increasingly as I get older, my artistic heroes are the KLF, and when they went to burn a million <laughs> yeah. quid, for, and and if you've read their autobiography or biography, they still to this day do not have the first idea why they did that. No. no, just. Oh, we'll do it. They're, so they're still sort of depressed about it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I should, that's I even better. It, that's, they still <laughs> regret it. The fact that they, A, they did it, and B, they're real enough to then go, what the hell were we doing? <laughs> Makes me love them even more, I agree. Uh, anyway, this week, out of a an observation from a month or so ago, stems an entire show. So I think we should probably get on with it. 
a month ago, I was farting about this technical term with uh, some music software, which I did quite a lot. It's kind of my out of work moment for me. And I will spend hours sitting in my office with the spreadsheets turned off and the PowerPoints turned off. And instead, with various bits of musical equipment sitting around me, some of which are quite new, many of which these days are based in software, and uh, some of which are quite old, and some of them are mechanical. I've got a couple of saxophones. There's some old keyboard thing that I've got, which is about 30 years old. I've got a, a digital saxophone, which is great fun. And the thing that struck me when I was doing this a few weeks back was how seamlessly music technology works with other bits of music technology in a way that the nearly 30 years of working in business technology in various organisations over the years has shown me that most technology simply doesn't. That I can take a piece of technology that was built nearly 30 years ago, that A still works because it's not waiting for another firmware upgrade or a connection to the internet so that you can renew its subscription, and plug it into a device that is new that plugs into my PC or into my iPad or even into my mobile phone and will enable me to be able to allow the, that and then software on my mobile or PC or whatever and it works and it still works and I cannot think of anything else in terms of digital computer-based technologies that has got that sort of longevity or actually to be fundamental still works you know you couldn't run Windows 3.1 software effectively really to do anything these days. If you try to fire up an old internet browser from 25 years ago and try to surf the internet, now it happens. It's all broken. There's none of that kind of ability to be able to still use things and use them with other things that you get with music technology. So I thought it'd be interesting to be able to explore that a bit. So think a little bit about the, the history of that and then to be able to maybe draw some conclusions about what might the rest of technology learn from what we can glean from how music technology works. And so I thought, well, I could prattle on about that on my own just to Chris and it'd be very dull or I could get somebody who actually is more than just a weekend pootler. And so Timo, you're a musical artist, music artist, you're a designer, you tell stories, you have a podcast called Global Goals Music Roadshow. You've got, you know, you've got a lot going on and, and you are Momo Tempo as well. I am all of those things, yeah. And I suppose for me, this is the most gloriously intersectional thing I could be asked to do. And I'm surprised I'd not thought of this topic. You've really got my imagination running. It's so obvious, so close to home for me, where sort of futurism meets tech, meets vintage synths, meets art, meets the whole culture of globalization that's driven by, in my opinion, the cult of engineering. And and here we are to talk about how it all fits together. Good. So let's go back a few hundreds of years, because I think the starting point for this is the structure of music. And within all of this conversation, I think the caveat to it all is we're really talking about Western music here. And actually, a lot of the technologies that I've just described, they're brilliant if you're doing stuff on a 12 note scale and in time signatures that are kind of conventional around threes or fours or twos or or if you're really, you know, way out there in Dave Brubeck sevens. But if you're doing with microtonal, which is, say, a lot of Eastern music where the the intervals between notes are much or very different to a Western ear or whatever, it doesn't really apply so well. But go back maybe a, what, a couple of millennia, roots of, or a few millennia to the roots of music and people starting to be able to not only play music, but make notes to or note down what is going on with music so that they could record 
a version of it for posterity. Yes. I mean, this is why all music is essentially a technology experience. Because a technology, it requires technology to create an experience, but it's the experience you're actually making, which gets to the heart of why this might be a bit different as a tech sector. But unless you're opening your throat, doing choral work, which is how our sort of instinct for self-expression happened musically, you're needing something. People, I think, immediately reach for sticks to hit and for skin stretched across hollow sound uh, hollow chambers to make sounds and that that gets into tone immediately i think humans wanted to make more of it so you got to well how do you note that down you need a language and my understanding is there's examples of cuneiform that notate some sort of musical experience pythagoras apparently had a word or two to say he suggested unsurprisingly there might be a mathematical relationship between tones the greeks came up with some sort of tetrachordal system where they thought might be four notes in a four key notes in a in a scale and then you know you've got a thousand years later about sixth century some roma bloke berthius who was a roman senator wrote some influential paper about music and around then people like pope gregory who did a lot he started calendars he also started music schools but this was still before people were actually writing down notation and some some person saint isidore of seville said this is daft with he, this person was deeply irritated with forgetting tunes, which I am on stage every time I perform because I don't read music. So they kind of came up with an idea of sort of marking the flow of a melody, the cadence, the ups and the downs with notes, but they didn't represent specific notes. Some it was a bloke I'd never heard of, uh, Guido D'Arezzo, who was a music boffin who came up with the idea of staves, lines, and and representing specific notes in a in a twelve note scale. And that sort of got iterated through the Dark Ages. You had the basics of that around the 13th century through a th- few different people. But I think it's a lot of this, like so much of our culture goes back to, you know, kind of 400 years where you had the seeds of the Enlightenment, but also orchestral music started to overtake folk chambers and more and more instrumentalists were added at court and they all needed to know more specifically what they were doing rather than just strumming along. And they needed more fine-tuned notation and this sort of developed more and more until by about Mozart's time you know you could read his charts we do to this day kind of and recreate it with an orchestra now that's 300 years of 250 years of technology that hasn't radically changed that's amazing yeah and that so somebody today can look at something from three or four hundred years ago and have a pretty good stab at it in a way that actually probably even language would be a bit challenging. Certainly handwriting would be challenging. So we've got this standardised way of being able to write music down. We've got a series of different instruments as if, you know, a lot of evolution of those instruments from the Baroque period through to the classical period of Mozart into the romantic periods of Beethoven being the bridge point then, but we've basically got stuff that you scrape, stuff that you blow into whilst making raspberry noises with your lips, stuff that you blow into whilst getting a bit of wood or reed to be able to vibrate, stuff that you blow across, stuff that you hit. Have I missed any of the major categories of musical instrument? I think that's no, the, that, that's kind of it. it. It's It's hitting, blowing and scraping on a on an epic scale of really finely tuned bits of timber and catgut. And that carried on until probably the early 20th century. And we start to then see a new 
type of uh, musical instrument that is based around electricity and circuits, valves and stuff. Yeah, you had you had a lot. I mean, electricity. I mean, obviously, in the nineteenth century, lots of experimentation happened, and the boundaries between sort of science, innovation, and and music were very lots. I mean, all boundaries were a little bit blurred, even as they were all trying to pin it down with good labels. And you had it. I mean, there were sort of electrical things happening in the late eighteenth century because of. The early development of battery power. Jean Baptiste Delaborde made his what was it clavecin électrique, and it was mucking about with sort of electromagnets trying to resonate bells effectively. So a bit of a gimmick, but there it was, sort of electric. A hundred years later, uh, you've got Elisha Gray's musical telegraph trying to sort of make tones down the new telegraph system, and then later on instruments that use the phone systems because there were no other speakers but the ones in people's you know emerging handsets so that it's interesting what people try and some of this stuff was about imagining ways to send data like a telegraph but they found themselves making tones and, and making accidental oscillators effectively and then when radio valves really took off and and radio as a technology happened in the very first part of the 20th century a lot more instrumentation started to come out of that that was blatantly electronic in the first the very first kind of synthesizers effectively by oscillators and stuff like that which brings us to the famous Victor Theremin in the 20s which made music by magic and this so the, the theremin was a device that was using electromagnetic waves and probably most famous for being the lead noise in quite a lot of the Beach Boys stuff <laughs> and the Star Trek theme tune, I think was a theremin at the There might have it. been in there. They had a female vocalist doing There might have been a theremin in the back there as well. Theremins were very popular in 50s sci-fi, but they've been around for 25 years by then. And it uses electromagnetic presence, doesn't it, to affect the oscillator and the pitch, the tone. Is it sort of wooey kind of It's a wooey noise? sound. Yeah, that's magic. Yeah. So let me ask a question because I'm 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 this is outside my domain really, but I'm interested because of course the reason somebody can come along with electricity and as you say resonating things, they everybody knew that 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 musical notes were that were 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 resonant frequencies. They understood that, and that that was not that wasn't a revelation at that point. So when you get electricity and when you start to understand how electricity works and magnetism, electromagnetism, etc. You could start to think, okay, I'm going to make a, a an instrument or whatever, but there's a. It's also about what you do with that, right? Because it's quite easy to make a tone, like a pure tone of, uh, and say we're going to this is this is going to be 500 hertz or whatever. But actually, actually doing something that that is replicating an, a musical instrument which has lots and lots of different harmonics going on, that's another question, isn't it? So it, there must have been a point where people thought well here's some tech we can do something with it and there's the instruments we know we know we normally play and trying to figure out what the what's the what's the relationship between this thing that i can do like a tuning fork right so if tuning forks are around everybody knew that you could create a pure tone from a tuning fork in fact wasn't there like a tuning fork didn't they say okay it's got to be 400 and something hertz and that's an a 440 and before yeah. that there were more than one A. So actually, you could write down your musical notation, but depending on where you started from, you would have a different. You would have a diff. You, you'd maybe have a different outcome. So all of that kind of stuff had to happen. But then you can say you got to go from this. Okay, that's a, that's what we call a pure A. 
to that's an A on a piano or that's an A on a harpsichord or that's an A on a on a violin or whatever. And that that's a, that's quite an important leap, right? Yeah, it is. But I think it, it also illustrates the the kind of the, the debate that we've had in nascent tech terms over a hundred the last hundred years, but especially think of somebody like Elisha Gray who, who made his musical telegraph. He was driven by this idea of, of purity and trying to make pure sounds pure sounds. We can make the most pure A ever and get rid of all the imperfections. What a weird thing, because of course when you study sonics and harmonics at all, it's all the imperfections that make it work. It's the imperfections that make the emotion. The obvious thing being that if you made a, an exact pure sort of, it wouldn't quite be a sine wave, but a, a really pure violin note, and you managed to duplicate that across five violins, you wouldn't get emotion. You get this slightly weird, per- perfect sound, which nature doesn't do. But when you get five violins all scraping things, however expertly, in all these minute differences, what you get is a surge of emotion. It's the imperfections that make music work. It's the imperfections that give character to everything. Imperfections from our sort of level of make it really shiny and clean. There'll be science in there, but it's much finer grain. Uh, that's And that's beautiful. It's poetic for me as an artist. That's kind of wonderful. It's going to stop trying to clean it up. <laughs> it's, the, it's the dirty bits that make it great. It's one of the things that um, I remember talking to my grandfather, who was, a, who was a physicist, and it was about the time when CD was becoming the dominant form for, for music. My grandfather was born in 1913, and talking to him about the irony of how music that was mostly rock and pop music, mostly featuring electric guitars that mostly depend on the fact that there is massive amounts of distortion going yeah. on, were being then crystal clear recorded on <laughs> CD. And he didn't really understand because he didn't really ever listened to rock music. He had no idea what I was going on about. There <laughs> um, so we've got evolution of technologies coming along. We've got new ways of being able to make noises other than just scraping, banging or blowing. And people are willing to experiment as well. I think that's the mm. other thing here, isn't it? So, Big spirit you know, of that. The, the, my, my main musical instrument is the saxophone and adult sax. He was a prolific inventor of instruments. He, he uh, yeah, a lot of them were. An awful lot of people at that time were. But, and it was also finding the medium by which people would be willing to accept that. So mm. he worked with people like Ravel. So Bolero, right. the thing yeah. that Tall and Dean made famous in the 80s, had two saxophones in it, a tenor and a soprano, because they were working together on this idea of being able to get that into orchestral music. Mm. So you need to be able to find people who are willing to experiment, to be able to get these ideas going around. We step forward then from the, the 20s through to the, I guess, the 40s and the 50s, you start to see more and more electronic-based keyboard instruments start to emerge. But all of these things are still devices that are being played by humans. Yes, they are. I think you've got to, the thing about the 20th century, the modernist period, is it's this massive redirection of the of ways of seeing. So I still cling to that as a... As, you know, my primary definition of art, it's about new ways of seeing. That was the phrase that came out of late modernism in a way. And they, everybody was questioning what everything was. And it was a wonderful blur in lots of ways between science and, and art and tradition and experimentation and, and what an energised frenetic time. And then in the middle of the 20th century, tape technology was a big dirtier, actually, in lots of ways to, to, to try and record and capture things, the early sense of sampling. And, of course, famously, Pierre Schaeffer, Music Concrete, started to say, well, what if sound can be music? If you hear it differently by splicing it up and repeating it, is 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 that music or isn't it? And it threw all the 
purists and classical people into no causes no noise blah 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 and into those sort of arenas came different levels of technology making actually new sounds to the human ear think of that eras where nobody'd heard oscillators doing certain things or particular filters or combinations or chopped up samples on tape wow and that turned instantly into they put those into keyboardable instruments as well like the what became the uh, mellotron yeah. yeah and earlier versions of that were out in the late 50s so says there's a lot going on 50s and 60s and then of course we have to mention before we get to our main point bob moog and the invention of the of what we you know now know as the synthesizer he was actually selling melodia theremin kits from his basement as a sort of late teenager and he met at a sort of trade show he met a guy called herb deutsch who was a composer musician and they just fell in love with each other's love for electronic music and they went well let's form a company and deutsch managed to go back to his college and say will you give me a bursary 200 quid to go and work with Bob Moog and invent a synthesizer. And between them, really quickly, they came up with the first Moog modular synth in 1964, which did get shipped with a keyboard. So still they're basing these things around interfaces that we they, that were recognisable tech going back three centuries. And of course, it was, was it Wendy Carlos who did the bark on Switched synthesizers, on yeah. which was all about the Moog. Yeah. instruments uh, but it was just basically playing the same notes the same notation that went back 400 years but just with a new sound it was but uh, switched on Bach I mean it's amazing that you know a trans artist actually is, is a turning point in music because when she put out that record it got the attention of people like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and others legend has it the Rolling Stones bought a Moog modular system and used it once in a film and then sold it to Tangerine Dream. There's a whole bit of history there. And yeah, it just it just caught people's imagination because it was so weird and wonky in that cover with somebody dressed as Bach in, in the 1700s garb with the wig in front of the Moog modular. It's still cool to this day. Yeah, but they were essentially just saying, look, we can reinvent the sound. And, and then, but that led to people like Tom Eater in the 70s kind of reimagining how you'd even approach that with early kind of homemade sequences. And lots of people were making ways to use pulses and sort of arpeggiations and fudge things from those machines. So there were some rhythms going on and some early drum machines happened in the 60s as well. But yes. So this is the turning point. I guess there'd been the pianolas. So in the, in the well, and those go back to Victorian eras. They do. Essentially big clockwork devices that yeah. would play back music using sheets of paper, which was in fact that... There is a, a fantastic argument to say that that was one of the core founding principles of computer technology yes. because those punch cards, yeah. which were used in that, which originally had been taken from mechanical looms, then became the way in which you programmed early computers. Mm -hmm. But we then started to see in the 70s, really, I guess, the ability for machines to start to play instruments. Mm. I think of bands like Kraftwerk. I learned how to make music by listening to them. And they they represent an interesting evolution because they started in, you know, kind of 1970, the year I was born. And they showed up at this big space in Berlin that had been rented out cheaply by some legend, as it, some sort of local businessman. He hired a big space and said, you can all come and make noise. And... and all the kind of early kraut rockers ended up in this gaff where a social space had been made and they begged, borrowed and stole synthesizers and they jammed and they just and they all questioned this young generation, first young adults post-war Germany, 
what even is music? What is patriotism? What is sound? What is melody? They deconstructed stuff and they had fun. And Kraftwerk, their albums sort of go from being quite Yaz flute. There's a lot of Yaz flute on really early Kraftwerk, but with synths and other stuff and groovy Krautrocky beats into slowly getting more sequenced. And it's not until their album uh, The Man Machine in 78 where they actually worked out how to synchronise all their kit. And it shows, it's really tight. And it's not done with what we're about to talk to. It was done with CV gates and clocks, but they worked it out so all the synths they could programme. And it sounds like early versions of dance music today. And so that's the point at which you're starting to see people getting not only machines playing the the instruments... So you program the instrument, it goes off and it, but then also enabling these different instruments or machines to be able to do it in time with each other. Mm. And the early ways you talked about the CV, control voltages and pulses being sent out, and and it was every manufacturer had a different set of ways of doing it, and it 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 didn't quite work. Yeah, and so it brings us to the the, the sort of nexus of of the history in a way if you want to see it that way and your point which i think is fascinating it's the the arrival of this shared protocol midi musical instrument digital interface and that was first proposed in 1981 first synths came out with it attached in 1983 and this is why i think it's interesting for the podcast although we've done this back history here which geeks like you and me matt will find interesting to me the interesting bit really is how it Obviously, how these machines make art and express human emotional truth and were part of great revolutions in sound and society. But it's also interesting for this podcast for the, from the culture of technology. Because in researching this, I found uh, what I, I inferred a, a supremely human reason for why we ended up with MIDI. Now, MIDI is, of course, this shared protocol that got competing devices talking to each other. And somehow they managed to negotiate starting to ship and manufacture things that could talk to each other by rival companies, which I think is remarkable. What do you know about that, Matt? What's your... So originally it was, is it Dave Smith? There's a company called, American company called Sequential. That's right, Sequential and Circuits. They, I used to have a Sequential multi-track. It was dreadful. Really? Uh, couldn't hold its pitch at all. <laughs> and it was all computer controlled, but still analog underneath it. It was a, it was a, it was an abomination of a synthesizer that's another story so he suggested that there was a problem here he spoke to a number of the other american manufacturers at the time so people like moog and oberheim and and others and he couldn't get the american keyboard manufacturer synthesizer manufacturers interested in this idea of coming to some sort of common standard but he managed to talk to some of the japanese companies so people like yamaha and korg and kaiwai and roland and the japanese companies bought the idea yeah, And so they then started to work together. And as you say, in the early 80s, started to be able to then get kit, which had five pin DIN standard. So like centimeter and a bit across round connectors. And it's essentially a network standard. It's a network protocol yeah. to be able to share musical data. That's all it is. And it enables you to allow one keyboard to control another device or a sequencer to be able to send out pulses that enables one or many devices to be able to connect. You do things in, you connect things in sequence, so you can have one thing to connect to another. You can then chain off the back of that. And it's 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 very simple in the way in which it operates, but through quite a simple set of code is able to encapsulate everything that was in that music notation that was set up, you know, formally four or 500 years ago 
and is still at the core of it all four three four two three four five beats in a bar up to 96 segments of that beat pitch based around octaves over a 12 note scale and other bits and bobs around it now my understanding of the way that worked out i was thinking how did they negotiate getting all these different companies to sign up to it dave smith I think would have been still quite young in the business because he developed the Profit 5, which is an absolute all-time classic synth. So you clearly had a bad experience of sequential circuits. He basically was working with microprocessors during the day, kind of like music. And he thought, hang on, we haven't got any synths that can hold their programs. You have to retune everything by hand. My beautiful Moog Liberation is exactly that. There's no patch storage. He And he simply sat at work one day and said, well, surely... We could use microprocessors to just ally that with the, the, the synth tech. You could then store your sounds. Surely ARP or Moog will just get on that. And they didn't. So he did. And he made the Profit 5 and it was a smash success. Came out in 1978. So he was still quite fresh. But my understanding is that actually it was Roland's founder, Ikutaro Kakehashi, who approached him because he actually approached Tom Oberheim first. And Tom Oberheim like Dave Smith, was working on some sort of protocol. And Kakehashi thought, it's a bit too clumsy. So he went to Tom, found him receptive, and then went back to the bosses of Yamaha, Kawai, of course himself, and got them all to sign up. And I was thinking, well, it's how? The, the histories I've read don't ever explain quite how they got that to work. They do describe a, this beautiful moment at the NAM show in 1983 where... They got uh, Kakehashi himself and Dave Smith were stood next to each other, supposedly. And he had a Roland JP6. And Dave Smith had a, a, a new Prophet, Prophet 600. And they linked them up with a MIDI cable in front of everybody and went, look, they can play each other. And everybody supposedly went, wow. And it was a, a cultural breakthrough that then took off. And you've got to remember that Kakehashi oversaw Roland for, well, like 40 years. And it was under his guidance that Roland made the TR-808 drum machine, the TR-909, the TB-303, basic thing. All these geeky things that are to this day cherished, loved icons. You have an 808 as your main image on your, or most of your pages, don't you, uh, Matt? It's a sort of iconic looking 80s drum machine. And everybody would know the sound if it was pointed out to them. And all these other synths that could suddenly talk to each other. And as the guys from The Orb said, thank God for MIDI, because it meant that we could suddenly make epic sounds when we weren't classically trained and we only had two hands because everybody does. And suddenly a whole new form of art was open to people. Now, before we get into sort of the impact of that, the reason I think it's interesting is that I, I think it's Kakehashi's background I simply read his story, and they didn't make any connections in the story version I read. I did. He grew up, his parents died young, both of TB, tuberculosis. He grew up with his grandparents. He worked down at the docks in Osaka doing sort of technical work. He was there during the war. Their house got destroyed by bombs. He couldn't get into official university because of supposedly health problems. He started a little clock-making shop, working for himself. He went back to Osaka, got caught up in a great big food shortage there that devastated Osaka after the war. And 
He then got TB. He ended up in a sanatorium supposedly for years and only got better because he got given an experimental drug, a trial, essentially given to him to try and his health got better. And he thought, right, I'm going to start an electronic music shop and I want to design the best synthesizer. And his motivation seemed to be a passion for music, but he was untutored, just like me as an artist. And I think there's some psychology in that. And yes, something to do with Japanese working together and and what they saw. And for him to reach out across the Pacific to San Francisco and find young Dave and and push to make music that was inclusive and more affordable and that people across cultures could plug in with each other. I know I'm reaching here, but I, I found this increasingly meaningful seeming. I know nothing about Kakehashi as a person, not seen him speak, don't know what personality he was, but to me, there's an awful lot of human context motivating that technology. Now try to imagine Apple, Google, Amazon, Blah, et al. having any of that in their DNA at the core. I think it was at the core of Roland, driven by him. And just a last note on this, I would say it's beautiful. In 1989, Yamaha went corporate, bought sequential circuits from Dave Smith, and they immediately closed it down. Out goes an iconic name. And 20-odd years later, he was working for himself again and trying to get the name back. And Kakehashi, as an old man, went to the boss of Yamaha in 2013 or something and said, I think you should give Dave the name back. Don't sell it, give it to him. Uh, And his quote was something like, I I think we shouldn't have unnecessary friction between electronic music manufacturers. We should be helping each other. And this is the spirit of MIDI. And honestly, when I read that, I just choked up. I thought, yeah, that's, that's why music tech works. It's because there were people who had emotional reasons to do better and came to places, places of influence and were after all helping people make these immersive emotional experiences. Computers for a thousand practical jobs. A musical instrument is to make music. I think there's psychology in in the tech there that has helped it find better moments along the way and and quite a few of them. Chris, do you think there are parallels with things like the open source movement in that story? In that particular story, I I think yes, there is. In as much as there are definitely altruistic community-based views on what is useful what can be what can be shared and what what what's the point of it really why are we mm. doing this and and there, there are you know there are examples on in the open source community these days of i was reading an example today actually of of software that was being used by american immigration and then some con- contributors then pulling their work from it because they, they, they weren't happy with it and then somebody has to go and re you know rebuild it etc and, and these the, there's definitely an ethos behind some of this stuff which which mm. which has parallels mm. i think for all the romance of these things which i think we need to keep tapping back into to do good frankly you've got to find some romantic passion for envisaging better but also, I would say at the time when I was just falling in love with music as a teenager, MIDI to me did seem really plastic and farty and like like the 80s were finally going to kill music because I was just discovering these what were actually quite creepy old 70s records with this old technology, but I found it hauntingly compelling. And at the same time, my mates were just starting to get hold of ways to get synths to talk to each other. And my Moog Liberation that I bought in 1987 for Peanuts 
doesn't have MIDI, but it's a beautiful thing. And MIDI just seemed really reductive. 16 channels, and then general MIDI came along as a, in a new low of soul-destroying conformity. Well, you always have a piano on 01, and you get 128 sounds, and they all line up. And it just seemed so kind of, oh, get rid of all the fun knobs and buttons and big oscillators, and we'll go digital and have five black buttons and a weedy LCD screen and that's your interface and MIDI will make it all work and I, I wasn't enamored with it uh, but as time's gone on it just works and it doesn't get in the way and it still works 40 years later and now yeah it's a, it was a revolution in emancipation for everyone I my generation your generations got to make music and muck around in bedrooms and I'm a music artist now because of MIDI yeah, and I do think I think there are some technological parallels in as much as, as you say, I remember listening to MIDI, MIDI files of Beethoven, you know, on on computers <laughs> in the nineties, and you think, oh, okay, you know, it's like chirping away, and it's it's not really yes. got the, you know, that doesn't really put, convey the convey the the majesty. No, of, no of, imperfections. Of a, of a you see, Chris, that's, that's but, the thing. But, but it wasn't there, wasn't it? it? It couldn't. It didn't have the depth in the same way. That years ago in the sixties, you know, computer nerds used to print out ASCII art pictures of the Mona Lisa, right? That was the thing they yes. used to have on your wall, line print of Mona Lisa. And the the technological parallel that that I always think of when when we come to this kind of does it work? Does it still work? Is VGA? You know, in nineteen eight in the late nineteen eighties, the IBM PC moved from CGA, which was like much much simpler in columns and 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 stuff like that to VGA, and that's the D-shaped connector that you can still get, right? That monitor yeah. you're looking at now has a VGA yeah. connector on it. And you could probably get a VGA monitor from 1990, plug it into your computer, and it would probably work, as long as you didn't try and push it too high resolution. And that's the, as you know, back in the 80s, early 90s, you could have a picture of the Mona Lisa on your PC, and it would be crap, you know? It would look like it was drawn in paint. And now you can have it and you could zoom in. You can have a digitized image of the thing and you can see every mm. single stroke. You could see it, you know, you can do, uh, it's not quite the same as having a canvas in front of you. You know what I mean? But the the quality and the ability of the technology to keep up with the the, the, the desire to convey the art or the or whatever it might be is now at a point where it's it, it, it's it's completely feasible. But that's a good, you know, the, the VJ standard is a really good, Example. In fact, the only yeah, it's not. It's probably about on its deathbed now. You don't get many. You know, no laptops have VGA, mainly because of the size of the dumb thing. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, it's too thick for an MacBook yeah. Air, isn't it? But but you know, it 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 did endure for a long time. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of that. Yeah, those lovely ASCII pictures, and they're kind of stunts, but they also say something. They become their own kind of art and a little experiment. I'm looking at uh, Atushi Ojisama's very experimental notation score from mid-century, last century, the Ishigan Waltz. And it's he's literally drawing faces with the crotchets and quavers. And I've heard somebody beautifully with an 8-bit tone generator try and play this score. And it is musical. It's nuts, but it is musical. And yet the the the, the score itself, it's a graphic score, and it and it's clearly a piece of work in itself. And how how fun for all this. But really, I think the interesting bit gets past when technology is new and it's been around and got boring so that people can sort of 
be less hypnotized by it and, and get back to their own thinking. I mean, the, the 20th century was this incredible series of rolling frontiers and all the heroes, our generation, still connected to it, Generation X especially, still connected to all these frontiers and expectations of progress. And so we think of all the great synth heroes or other pioneers. They did things first. They got to do it first. Wow, to be in the right place at the right time. And everything's a sort of pale imitation. But I've always said singing into your hairbrush is how every music artist starts. It's it's joyous. But and it's when you get past the, the kind of trying to be clever or trying to copy others and find your own voice with your own imperfections, that's when you get actually get interesting. And so now tech is egalitarian. All through the 80s, people were moaning about technology killing music, the snotty little stickers in, you know, live musicians' cars, car windows. I remember those. And it sort of was, you know, early iteration sounded a bit crap, but then it also spawned a whole new types of songwriting, whole new sounds. And now... You know, it's down to the quality of your ideas, just like making film, just like all the other ways that digital work has, has brought us all into the field. For better or worse, there's a ton of content, but it's also never been richer for ideas and for people getting involved. Fascinating stuff. Timo, thank you very much for joining us this week. Mm, my um, absolute pleasure. It was it was good. And there's, there's definitely something there about looking at old technologies and current technologies and how they all interplay with each other. What's the, the week ahead looking like in... Uh, Peach Towers. Not getting enough of the things I planned to do done because I am now just dreaming of taking an Easter weekend off and not staring at screens much. But Thursday night, I do have episode 10 of the Global Girls Music Roadshow with my colleague A.Y. Young, who is the US young leader to the UN and a force of nature and sustainability championing as a music artist. He and I have been making this show now promoting his battery tour, which is amazing. And it's just been amazing fun in beta, just learning as we go how to live stream a show and bring guests in with these amazing stories of how they're having a go at change making in lots of different ways. So that's Thursday night. And then I'm going to hang up my headphones, I think, for the weekend and, and go for a bike ride along the promenade in Bournemouth. Nice. Mm. Um, we'll put a link to uh, the various shows that you do on yeah. uh, the WB40 podcast website so cool. uh, if you want to uh, find out more about that you can uh, go to the website and you'll be able to find out the links christopher have you got uh, exciting week ahead well it's exciting and as much as friday is a day off and which means that uh, today's tuesday so in the next two days i have to crash to a whole bunch of things so that yeah. i can relax on friday rather than worry about the things that i didn't do because even more so because I, actually next week is a holiday for me i'd, I'd over a year ago, we'd, we'd booked to go somewhere this week. Now, of course, we're not going to be going anywhere, but I'm still taking a week off because, damn it, it's time to take a week off. You know, you don't. sometimes you just have to take some time. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm hoping, I've, I'm afraid, uh, like you said earlier, Matt, the, the, my hopes are not high for a, a sunny and a T-shirt uh, and shorts week, but it's it's something that I can I get on with things around the house and I can just, just take a week off work. And I think at some point we all need to take a week off work. I think I think take a week off, sit in your shorts on the floor in the kitchen and have a good weep and and let that be next Tuesday and then just see where that takes you. Yeah, I I think I mean that's not a bad idea. It'd nah. be kind of kind of boring to do the same thing that I've been doing for the last six months, but still, you know, I'll, why not? <laughs> <laughs> well then branch out and maybe move into I mean it's high time. You move to expressive air dance if that helps. You know, maybe, maybe, yeah. Whatever gets at your emotional truth, man, it's all, it's all fine.
That's good to hear. Well, I'm glad that you two will be, you know, lounging around and 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 caterwauling. I'll be, you know, long weekend uh, with the Easter stuff. Which we've got various things where we're going to meet people. Good grief! In places, and then I'm back to work next week. So uh, hopefully, it'll be a relatively quiet week to be able to get some strategic thinking, data modelling, and other various bits and bobs completed. Whilst no is nobody's around to be able to distract me from the task at hand so we're going to be taking a week off next week because it is easter monday and we do as a as a collective on this little show need to take a little time to be able to recharge our batteries i've managed actually this evening to be able to put in a a a guest booking that takes us all the way now to june with a, a remarkable series of people to continue the incredibly high standard of guests that we've had so far this year including your good self there team so when we get well back, pulled back there i thought oh no that sounds a lot better i wouldn't bother <laughs> listening to this one but so when we come back we are going to be joined by uh, claire selby who is going to be talking about some of the work that she's been doing at kingston university around getting students to get experience of what it is to work in agencies by setting up an agency that students work in which mm. is a fan- Fantastic idea. And she's also been doing some really interesting work about regeneration of the retail parts of at the centre of Kingston-upon-Thames, which, quite frankly, if you walk around it at the moment, looks like everybody's moved out because quite a lot of people have moved out. So anyway, that will be the first show back in the, the second week of April. And then we'll put a list of uh, the upcoming guests on the podcast on the podcast website and don't forget if you want to join us for the ongoing quite random conversations that take place on the wb40 signal channel you can do if you just send us a note on twitter at wb40podcast.com then we can send you the magic link so you can join in the fun with that have a lovely easter break and uh, we will be back in april Thank you for listening to WB40. You can find us on the internet at wb40podcast.com, on Twitter at wb40podcast, and on all good podcasting platforms. Go and check it out, sausage. <laughs>